recording? Excellent. Uh, today we're going to talk about love. Um, the love of God, which is uh, perhaps one of the hardest things to comprehend in the world. Maybe right behind it is the grace of God. I'm trying to comprehend something that is of an infinite uh, value, but which we as a human race, possess something that is like it. In other words, the, the love of God is um, the reason why people love. And everybody loves. Everybody loves something. Absolutely everybody loves themselves. And that love, which is an attraction or an affection or a desire, is actually a manifestation of God's love. I'm not saying it's the same. It's far from it. But it is uh, definitely a part of it. So today we uh, begin, and we'll look at it this week, is to see uh, how much we can um, understand about such an important subject. And to look at it in a different way than we have. And what I mean different, I mean just more in depth. Don't approach this week with an I already know that attitude uh, because then you'll miss it. And, and I'm telling myself to do the same. Um, for instance, we often don't show love, the, you know, of the purest kind that we possess to those that are closest to us. And we often will show more respect and honor to strangers because we're, we're concerned about our reputation and we're um, and and this is an actual manifestation of something that's a problem uh, in in every believer, and we've got to uh, work through that through God's word. So we're going to start in Second Thessalonians two sixteen, our main passage, and let's begin with prayers. We do let's be thankful and asking God for His guidance through His Spirit, so that we can do the best. Or, or gain the best of knowledge and understanding of God's love, such an important subject. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit. Through both, we can come to a comprehension of an attribute of you that is infinite and unchangeable, that has no limits. We, on our own love, Father, always put limits on it. Yours is unlimited, and yet you command us to have your love. All of us come short of this. All of us need forgiveness. But all of us need, as believers, as your children, need to be striving for it. There, there must not be any excuse as to why we don't have it, but that we must strive to attain the standard for which you have set it. And that standard is the highest of things. It's the greatest thing that it's ever happened in the history of mankind is the demonstration of your love. So, Father... Through your spirit and your word, we ask for tremendous clarity through, through both so that we would comprehend. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. The love of Christ, the Son, and the love of the Father, both are mentioned here in our passage. This 
this sentence, which is verses 16 through 17, is the final line of the main body of the letter. This letter that is an encouragement to the Thessalonians, as the first one was, the first letter was. And this, Paul is now going to conclude the letter, but before he concludes it, he writes a, a, a small sentence of a, a sort of capstone to what he, is, uh, may, what he has mentioned in the main part of the letter. Uh, it is encouragement. It is warning. It is the encouragement to keep going and to keep living and striving in the manner of Christ despite persecution, despite no matter how hard it may be. And so he says here in verse 16, he says, Now may... So this this is a a short conclusion. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, that himself is written there uh, by Paul, and so it's emphasizing the Lord. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. Um, And I'm going to pause there. God has led me, and I, I think pretty clearly, to have us speak of his love this week. Um, he has loved us and given us, uh, sorry, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. And then in verse 17, the second part of the sentence is Paul's desire is that God would comfort and strengthen their hearts in every good work and word. So the um, the fact that there are both here, we have both, It's not, he doesn't say now may God who loved us, but we have the love of the Son, of Jesus Christ the Son, and the love of the Father. And both, we have in the Son, the one who would actually go through the suffering, who would go through the limitation, who would go through the, the huge step down from um, being God to being man, while re- maintaining his deity, of course, and in executing the plan of God, for uh, which was the will of the Father. And, and so what we have here is the planner, and we have the one who executes the plan, and both of them love us. What we have, uh, it says, who has loved us? It's a participle, and it refers to the fact that God the Son and God the Father both have and do and always will love us. And so what we want to explore is, you know, what, kind, what is this love? You know, what does it really mean? What is it, and can we actually define it? Um, this love in you will create action. It's not just words. Uh, anybody can say it. Anybody can uh, talk about it. But this is action. And we're going to see that in a number of passages. That the love of the Son and the Father prompted them to action on our behalf. And when this love is in us, and we'll see exactly how it should be, that uh, will have action towards others. This love is something like falling headlong into a bottomless pit. A pit out of which there's no escape. The initial fall for anybody, if you've, I've never fell that far, <laughs> obviously, but I have fallen. I've fallen pretty far off a ladder once. Uh, the initial descent will be absolutely terrifying. The beginning of the fall into this incredible pit will be terrifying. And I I would imagine it might be the most fearful time in your life. 
But as you descend even more, the same love that this pit, crevasse, whatever you want to call it, is made of will start to envelop you. But we're not going to know anything about it unless we dive in. The same love of God that makes up this incredibly absorbing, all-encompassing action and way of thinking will actually absorb us. And as John writes in 1 John 4, all fear will be gone. I think initially, I know so, initially, the fear is mighty. And that's why people don't do it. I how many people say they have the love of God, but they don't? How many people say they have the love of God, but it's just full of limitations? That's one of the ways you know it. And say, I love, I love, I love, and then I stop. That's not God's love. It's not. God's love never stops. It has zero limitations to it. It's limitless. I say, but that's impossible for us. That's your excuse. That's my excuse. I've used that. That's my excuse. That's God. I can't do that. That's a lie. And it's an excuse. God's love in us is like falling headlong into a deep pit from which there is no escape. In this place where you're lost. And I do mean that. You're lost. You have lost. Self. Limitation. You have lost control. I mean that. I mean the word control. It will cause you to act on behalf of others for their good in a way that releases you from all thought of self. It's reckless abandonment of all restraint. You've thrown it off. And so, well, really God has. And so complete an absorption in God Himself that here and only here do believers experience an ecstasy of divine fellowship that few, I think, have ever seen, because few have ever gone here. I mean, we could bypass this verse and say, hey, you know, God loves us, and he does. For whatever reason, I meant to do that. I'm, I'm like, ready to move on. I want to get on to my next study. And I don't know how God does it, but he told me no a complete absorption into God himself. I mean, we're all that positionally, and I don't even want to talk here about position or experience or that kind of thing. God here, when he talks about his own love, is not talking about any any formula. He's talking about who and what he is. And because of what he is, his love does things. And those things that he does are reckless. Those things that he does are not uh, for the purpose of what we think they might be, because that's how our love works. So, for instance, I say, well, I'm going to lay down my life for this certain person, and I want to save them. Say it's my child. Right? If your child, if your doctor came to you and said, your child's going to die unless you give a blood transfusion, that may kill you. Any normal parent's going to do it. You're no hero for doing it. I mean, technically you are a hero for doing it, but you'd have to be a bad parent not to do that. 
But your end goal is something. It's sacrificial for sure, but your end goal is in a somewhat selfish way. Would you do it for another child? Maybe, maybe. Would you do it for an enemy? Would you do it for someone who just killed your children? You know, on and on down we go to the most evilest of people and we ask, you know, would we give our lives to save those people? And this is exactly the argument God uses in his word. So pause there for a second and wonder, what is the end goal of people who long for great wealth? People who long for an enormous amount of wealth. Because part of this here, as we've just read, may God comfort you. This is the God who loves us and has given us eternal comfort. And so we can't dissociate uh, from love, the love of God, the comfort of God, which we talked about on Sunday. And comfort is this ability to do all that we're commanded to do with strength and joy. And it doesn't matter how hard it is or how easy it is or who it's for, that we're able to to do things and do the will of God as we're called to do it. And, uh, and we're at peace with that. Um, I'm not stressed. You know, that's what comfort means. We, we understand this. Uh, I could be about the work of God and be like all stressed out about it. And why aren't you noticing what I'm doing? And I'm, you know, as I'm becoming a real a pest to everybody because I want to be noticed for all the sacrifice I'm doing for everybody else. Um, but that's not comfort. I'm actually stressed out. Comfort is the ability to do with joy, with peace, and with strength. So I get back to my question. Why do people want great amounts of wealth? It's associated because I see this. And what made me think about it is this, uh, this uh, movie we watched the, the other night, uh, which was this typical, uh, you know, a movie about those who are going to steal a whole bunch of money. And once they steal all this money, which is millions and millions of millions, what are they going to do? They're going to run off to a beach somewhere. And that's always the end goal. Right? I'm going to sit on this beach with an umbrella drink and, you know, just sit there. And for the first time in my life, I thought, why would they want to do that? I mean, you go through all this trouble to gain all this money, it's a lot of work. And in these movies, you know, you're going to get caught. You're just about to get caught or whatever. You're risking life in prison all to do what? Sit on a beach and do nothing? But that is actually why people do what they do. Even, even you know, in our society. And here's my point. People call that comfort. They say comfort is doing nothing. But God's comfort is nothing like that. Comfort is I get to do nothing. I don't have to do anything. But God doesn't give us that comfort. God comforts us, not by giving us nothing to do and then taking care of every need that we have, like we have a hundred servants serving us like infants. Like, in other words, I just, you know, or ring the little bell and all, and all my food comes and my laundry's done and my rent is paid and on and on. God could do that. He promised that he would take care of every one of our needs. 
But he didn't tell us to do nothing. Comfort is not doing nothing. Comfort is doing what love demands. And as we see it here, like look at our passage. May he, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. You see the word work and word. And with the word good, the modifier there, agathos, is good. It means divine good, as God would have it good. That's a lot of work in the word. And by the way, when I do that work in that word, if it's going to be good as God defines good, it has to be based on love. So notice that comfort is not doing nothing. God doesn't promise, well, you follow me and eventually you'll sit on a beach and do nothing. By the way, what does that do to a person? Doing nothing. What does it do? Now, I read this article this morning. It's uh, one of my, uh, I like this guy. He writes for Epic Times. His name's Jeffrey Tucker. <clears throat> he says, this article, here it is, quote, One of the great movies of the 20th century is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1948, starring Humphrey Bogart. Two burned-out, impoverished Americans living in Mexico join a grizzled old gold prospector on a hunt. The main action is psychological, what the discovery of the gold does to their minds, their trust, their morality, and their lives. The viewer gets a front-row seat to how normal people can truly lose all sense of proportion and moral clarity when faced with the prospect of unlimited wealth. Once trust in each other is gone, everything, including sleep, is vanquished. Ask any truly wealthy person you know. They will tell you that they learn to suspect every bit of flattery, every new friendship, every kind word. It is very often true that others are only after their money. The hangers-on don't want to work for it. They want to scheme for it. The prospect of something for not much effort makes people crazy. The topic comes to mind as news reports say that Mick Jagger has no intention of passing on his half-billion fortune from his catalog to his kids. I didn't know that, but too bad for the Jagger kids, right? <laughs> Why not? Surely every parent wants to bring comfort, wealth, and security to the kids. Why would a parent deny them that? The reason is clear to every wise person. Infinite financial privilege and access does not build good character. Ultimately, people do not obtain happiness by living well without having earned it through the sweat of one's brow. We need to experience the relationship between work and reward. This is what affirms us as thinking, creative, and productive human beings. Take that away, replace it with infinite financial reward, and what becomes of us? We become spoiled, entitled, slothful, and unempathetic. We see ourselves as above others and end up treating others badly. Our very morality and humanity become, uh, come to be diminished, and it does not yield a happy life either. The caricature of trust fund babies is true. They rarely amount to much because they don't have to. They very quickly take their cushy lives for granted and coast until the bitter end. 
This is a huge problem for every parent, even those of modest middle-class means. For the, from the time they are infants, parents want to provide shelter, food, health, safety, happiness, experiences. They say the same as God provides for us, and he promises. This is the job of parents, and they do it well. They make every sacrifice to make sure their children do not suffer, but rather enjoy a better life than they did growing up. But at some indiscernible point in the child's life, the parents must, must withdraw and let the child find their own path to happiness. Very often, the kid does not want this. Still, the comprehensive support cushion has to be taken away. All children at some point must be kicked out of the nest, even if that means a hard landing on the ground before they have really learned to fly. Does God comfort us by taking care of every single material need without us having to lift a finger? We say, well, if he loves us, why doesn't he do that? But God's love for us is infinite, unchangeable, and it's of a nature that is impossible to actually truly define. I loved uh, A.W. Tozer was writing about God's love, and he said, It was like going on a trip around the whole globe, visiting every single major city throughout the earth, and then trying to tell your friends about it in five minutes. God's love is what? God's love is not like some parents who want to give their children more or want to give to their children that they should excuse that they want them to have a better life, with the excuse, I'm sorry, that they want them to have a better life than what they had. And that's a terrible... uh, They're deceived, actually, about what better life is. The definition of that is flawed. God's love is our comfort, but this comfort is not akin to sleeping on a cloud or lounging in a chair on a beach and doing nothing. God's love calls us to love others in the same way. And I mean, I I purposely picked a depiction of the cross that was bloody. This is Jim Caviezel from um, Passion of the Christ. But, I mean, it's probably the best depiction that has been done on screen as to the extent of his physical suffering. None of us have a clue about his mental suffering on that what he went through. But God calls us to love others in the same way. Anything less than that? No. This is clear. We very easily bask in this love that God has for us, which is defined by that. That is the ultimate demonstration, as the the Word of God shows us. But when it comes to us loving others, well, it's not that much. There's a limitation to it. And this is what we have to get over. I'm not saying you're going to get over it tomorrow either. But it is if there's a, a mental barrier there or whatever, uh, a definition in our own minds that are limiting us, that we've already agreed with our own souls, that we will not do what God has called us to do in love, then we're selling ourselves short. <clears throat> and we're not doing it. So God's love calls us, God loves us, and he calls us to love others in the same way. You know, when you think about it, it's just astounding that he would actually ask us to do this. 
So in our passage, every good work and word which are going to come from this has to come from God's love. It is, again, the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who have loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. And he gave it to us without cost. The good hope is that I... You know, I'm going to serve all these people just like the Lord washed their feet. I'm going to serve them. The disciples didn't understand what he was doing. They were, in fact, around this very table arguing about who was the greatest disciple. And yet he puts on the servant's robe and washes their feet, asking them, do you know what I've done to you? And they did not. But they came to know it later. And when they understood, what did they do? Every one of them, what, were, what was their lives? It was absolutely complete sacrifice for others. As apostles, uh, you and I are not sent all over the world as apostles, but we have people in our very own lives. And as I open with the people who are right near you, your family, spouse, children, neighbors, coworkers, whoever, They have to be loved with God's love. They have to be loved with that love. This love is an abyss. It's a leap off an edge in which, back on the edge, all the restrictions, all the restraints, all the control, uh, all of that is left behind. All of the, you know, I'll, I'll only go so far as long as it doesn't hurt me too much. That's all left behind on the ledge that you just jumped off of. It's a scary jump. So as uh, our passage says, not our passage, but the one coming up, it says that we love because this God first loved us, First John chapter 4. In our passage, it's the love of the Son and the love of the Father. We love because they first loved us. That love is depicted by Christ. It's the ultimate. So it's vital that we look into it and see all that we can. The love of God is the only true love. Everything else in the human race is an echo of it. And all of it is. If you look up in Webster's, what is love? It's an affection and an attraction to someone for some reason. It could be to an object. The Bible depicts it exactly the same. Actually, most of the love depicted in the Bible is, I, I can't say most now. I, I think a great, a great much of it, let's say, is very human. Very human. Uh, the faintness of it. Uh, meaning that in mankind, right? So this love of God is in God's creatures. Uh, everybody has it. So um, a child loves a toy. Right? That, that's not a that's, a... that's a divine trait in a creature that is made in the divine image. Right? So you don't... Uh, animals don't act like that. But we do. A criminal loves money. A man loves a woman. Wholeheartedly. A patriot loves his country. 
man loves his boat <laughs> or his dog or his drink. And, you know, in this is an echo of God's love. What is it? It's an attraction. It's a desire to possess. That's all it is, but it's strong. So it ranges in the amount of faintness it bears to the original. It floats everywhere. Everybody has it, and therefore it's been all over the world since the beginning of time. The Bible shows this plainly and labels it love. There's romantic love in the Bible. There's a lot of that. Erotic love. Marriage, which is depicted as love. And sometimes the marriage is depicted with the erotic or with the sexual. Parents for children. Slaves for masters. Masters for slaves. For when uh, Saul loved David. And friends. And Jonathan loved David and David loved Jonathan. And all of that is depicted, it's all over the Old Testament narrative. So it's really quite, uh, quite prevalent. And then God's love is stated in the scripture. Probably most tenderly is in uh, Deuteronomy 7 where God says to Israel, I loved you and that's why I elected you. You're like, why? Why? It seems so random. He just picks Abraham out of millions of people. But that was his choice. He, he, like he always does. You've got to love him for it. So I'm not going to explain myself to you. <laughs> I chose him because I loved him. You say, well, why did you love them? Why didn't you love, I don't know, the Greeks or the Irish or the Italians, you know, or somebody like that. But nope, him, Abraham. And then he demonstrates his love to Israel. He elects her, but he elects Israel to glory. Like, the whole world knows the movie The Ten Commandments because of God's election of Israel. I mean, what happened to them in Egypt, taken out of the great nation of the time, and yet Israel is set free by this miraculous event called the Passover and the Red Sea and through the desert. In the desert, he gives her his law. He forgives her sin. He gives her the promised land. It's another crossing of water, the Jordan. He raises up deliverers. They fail and fail and fail again. And even in love, he disciplines her. And he gives her covenants. And he says, I will never, never break them. Astoundingly, even amongst Christian circles now, many of them, they don't think that God, they're amillennialists who don't think that God is actually going to fulfill his promises to Israel. That's a lie. He says it clearly. He said, look, he says to us in, in Jeremiah 31, if you can get rid of the moon and the stars, then I'll break my covenant with Israel. Could you say it any clearer? Look at this passage in Zephaniah. I put it up here so we wouldn't have to spend an hour trying to find it. <laughs> The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That's a promise to Israel. That's a fulfillment of the covenants. Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant. So this is God's love, right? Now, this love kind of has a, you know, kind of human Ish. 
I mean, what, wouldn't you have that if, if you loved your husband or your wife, truly? You loved your kids, which we naturally do as parents. Um, that kind of the same thing. Quiet love over you. Shout for joy over you. There's another, there's another wonderful uh, paragraph by Tozer. I, I, I decided to read a little Tozer. Tozer, if you know A.W. Tozer from the past, he's kind of mystical and very emotional. I love him for that. Um, he even writes about, he writes about, don't tell me about the suffering of Christ. Let's rejoice in it. You know, he goes into all this stuff. He's, he's very positive. <laughs> but he, he talks about how, you know, I get up in the middle of the night to get my kids a glass of water like five times a night and they don't need it. I'm looking at their terrible report cards and getting mad. Uh, I'm teaching them to obey and respect, and I have to say it a thousand times. And he says, and as he's writing this, he says, having a family sounds awful. And a lot of people in our modern selfish world think having kids is just the most awfulest thing. Because it is that. You know, you put them in the bed and then they want something. You know they only want you to go back in the room. You make them all this food that they don't want to eat. You send them to school and teach them all these things so that they bring home bad report cards and they don't do what you tell them. And you tell them a thousand times again and again and again to obey authority and to respect. And they don't. But he says what lubricates the whole thing. This is A.W.'s words. The lubrication is love. You love them. And so you keep getting the water. Yeah, you lose your temper, like I do. But then you can't be mad for long. See, that's what this looks like, somewhat, I would say. So the question becomes for us, how does the love of God compare with all the rest of the stuff that we see around us? Romantic love, even erotic sexual love, very prominent. The love of marriage. And there's nothing wrong with it in marriage, of course. The love of marriage, parents for children, the love of dear friends. But we must understand that though love is so flawed in fallen mankind, that it is the results of God's love. So I liken man's love to like a small tributary that has its source in a big, mighty river somewhere far away. You know, say us as unbelievers who loved our, whatever, our first car or our first boyfriend or girlfriend. It's a little trickle stream that is actually so separated from the love of God that is the original that we don't even know it. But yet we have it. And it is exactly what it is defined as. This is a definition from a lexicon in the scripture for the... Um, the Hebrew word is ahav. And love is a strong emotional attachment or desire to possess or to be in the presence of. Now, we haven't yet today, and I've, I've got to hurry up to get to it, but I haven't even touched God's love yet, really. Just the real echoes of it. The Family love, the familial love, the romantic love, marriage love, even love of sin. You know, it actually does come from the same place. It's tainted. It's destroyed. 
It's destroyed love, but it's love. It's a love to acquire, to possess, and it's a strong emotional attachment. So you love, when you love sin, it's, you know, it depends on what the object is. So, you know, a small little tributary, small little stream, and you go all the way back, but there's a source. And to that mighty river that is the source of God's love, because the Bible says that God is love. The Bible does not say that love is God. You cannot reverse them. Because if you say love is God, then you, you can worship love. Love is an attribute of God. Love is not God. So, that big, huge river that is the love of God, the pure stuff, has its source, like many rivers do, like in a mountain somewhere. And that source is God himself. And that image is important for us to comprehend because we have to understand, well, you know, if God is love, then, you know, what, what's important? You know, what's important to God? What's the most important thing? Is it me? Am I the most important thing to God? And that's a great question to be able to answer honestly and say, no, I'm not. It kind of hurts my feelings. <laughs> it would be horrible if you were. It would be horrible. You, I, the whole human race are not the most important thing to God. And only of Him could it be true and not be selfish and absolutely horribly selfish that for God, He is the most important thing. Hence, love will do what it does. Um, and it will do what it does despite us. So it's very important here, in terms of this definition, we see this uh, all throughout. Uh, the first instance of, well, tomorrow maybe, we'll look at the very first instance of the use of love in the Bible. And it's in Genesis 22. You can go look it up sometime uh, or before now and then if you want. And it is so significant. But I'm not going to talk about that. Not yet. That first mention of the Hebrew word ahav in Genesis 22. Right after that, not long in Genesis 24, we have our second use of it. And it is the love of Isaac for Rebekah. And it's a marriage takes her into the tent and marries her. You know, in the Hebrew world or in that time, uh, taking her into the tent and marrying her is going to bed with her and consummating the marriage. And so there, ahav means almost everything. It's marriage, it's a sexual attraction and desire, and it's also the love for her. And, you know, that, there it is, this desire to possess Does God, so when God loves us, does this become the definition of his love? So, and let's say it's something good, like, you know, my own wife. I wanted to marry her, possess her. And she said, yes, so I did. 
Right? And that so and I had a strong emotional attachment for sure, still do. <laughs> ten years later, we just had our ten year anniversary. And to possess and to be in the presence of. It's a great definition of marriage, really. And love. So when God loves us, I think about it. Well, it's actually true that God acted so as to possess us and we would be in his presence forever. Now, there's some theological bumps in here because when we say, well, God's going to do something to possess us, but he already owns us, right, because he created us. But the work of Christ on the cross is called redemption, and redemption is a word for purchase, like purchasing a slave. God bought us. The price was enormous. Imagine how expensive you are. But it's crazy. I'm not worth it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You're not. I'm not. I'm not worth the price he paid. So why was the cost so high? Well, the obvious answer is it's not that I was valuable the heights that he was to bring me to in order to be in his presence. That's a lot. You can't be in God's presence. This is the whole thing with people who they emphasize God's love and they forget about holiness and righteousness and justice. And, you know, keep the love. Absolutely. But look at the rest because God can't just say you know what, I forgive you. I know you messed up. Just come on board. He can't do it. Now, we know this. We've been thoroughly trained in this. Our pastors in the past have have done an awesome job at this, that the justice of God had to be satisfied, that we have a holy God who cannot have anything to do with sin whatsoever. And so for us to be in his presence... There's no way that he can just say, come on board. If I'm going to be in his presence, he has to make me as righteous as he is. And that is a price. So, God is love. So, he acted... But here we must be careful. But the careful thing is, is that, well, if God did this for us, are we what he wanted? In other words, God, and I've heard people say this and read about it, God was, you know, wanted fellowship. You know, we have an eternity of the Trinity and they just want creatures to hang out with them in heaven forever. And, and of course, the way I put that, you know, I, I don't agree with that at all. Um, it, it's almost to depict God as weak and lonely. No way. God did not, not only does he not need us, but he never made us his top priority. And I, I, you know, and I thought hard about this and prayed about it before. I was like, is that now, is that true? You know, I don't want to say anything that's untrue, obviously, but that to me is very true. Because if the whole point were us, then we're more important 
than even his love. But even still, love is not the most important thing. Because people say, you know, all you need is love or everything is love. It's not because God is love. Love is not God. It's so simple, but it needs to be absolutely emblazoned in our hearts that we're not worshiping love. Love is an attribute of God. God is the source of love. And what is of extreme importance, the the most important thing, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And not us. And by the way, if we were the most important thing, God failed because not all of us were saved. Why didn't he just wave his sovereign magic wand and make us all saved, if that were possible? Or just not create us at all? Or, you know, go back even farther and make us creatures like it seems like the elect angels are who can't disobey him. You don't see them as fallen. They're not depicted anyway. We don't know really much about it. But why doesn't he just make us creatures that are always doing it like little puppies? He didn't want that for us. Which you, if you didn't have the consciousness that God gave you, you would know nothing about it. But once you have this consciousness, to lose it <laughs> would be the most awfulest thing in the world. Would be you'd lose your identity completely. You'd be dead forever. God's top priority is not us. Thank God. So here now, where this is going to go is, now you've got to love others with this same love. Now, is that person your top priority? And if you say that they are, then then what you do is going to depend ultimately on how they respond to what you do instead of you doing. When I say, no, you know what, you're, I love you. You might even be like my brother, my sister, my child, and I love you even especially more than almost anybody on this planet but my love for you, you are not my top priority. Is the love of God my top priority? Well, you get no, not yet, but you're getting warmer. God is my top priority because all glory goes to Him. And you see, He saved you and He's using me to display His love to you and to demonstrate His love in the way that is just like that. If I can do it. He's using me to display this man who's not here anymore. And how I'm going to display him to the ultimate is like he did. And it's just... You're not going to do it. At all. If you don't understand what God's love really is. If God's priority is not himself, then we have to, we get into all uh, all these questions that become really sticky, which are why did he pick some and not pick others? I mean, if, if it really was about us, why did he elect these people and not others? Like we started with, why did he elect Israel? Why did he elect Abraham? It would have to be, I would think, something special about him. 
but there isn't. Was God lonely? No. Did he desire fellowship? No. If God's top priority was us, then we become more important than he is, actually. So divine love, why does it do what it does? It is its nature. It's a real simple answer, but boy, oh boy, to do it is not so simple. So go to 1 John 4, 8. First John 4, 8. It will be in this passage all week, so if you want, um, this, this would be a good passage this week if you have some um, devotional time with your Bible. Maybe chapters 3 and 4 of 1 John. Uh, actually, it's a short letter. I would read the whole letter through first and then do 3 and 4. 1 John 4, 8. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. For by this, sorry, by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So you notice how John here, and just in these two or three brief sentences, I didn't say, well, God is love, so he saved you. God is love, so he delivered you. But it's the emphasis is on sending the Son. And there's a great risk involved in this, isn't there? Is it? And this gets into a theological conundrum, this, you know, could Christ sin or could he not sin and all of that. But Yet when you read the Gospels and you see Christ saying Garden of Gethsemane and he's, he's so stressed out that he's bleeding through his skin and he says to the disciples, I am, I am uh, beyond stressed. He's at his weakest, not sinning, but weak. And he prays, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Do we see that this is, you know, it's a slam dunk? Is there a risk here? Now, of course, we say, well, no, God is sovereign. It can't be a risk. But there's, we're treading into ground here that we don't really know. <laughs> does it seem easy, at least, what he does? Not in the least. And yet, it's the action of love. It's love that causes the action and God who loves. And between the Son and the Father who both love us, they pull this off on our behalf. And there's no guarantee for them that anyone's going to believe it. I mean, of course, God knows this, but a whole lot of people rejected it and still are. And every one of these people who have rejected God and end up judged are people who God loved like more than we can possibly imagine. As Romans 5 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us, his own love towards us, 
and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this love risks everything. Now, we, you see, now for God, he has omniscience. He knows, right? He prophesies. He knows how it's all going to work out. But yet still, there's no guarantee. Uh, it's incredible that Christ would be on a cross between two men who were murderers and one would respond to him and the other would reject him. That's no coincidence. Like so, and, and he would be surrounded by people who would mock him. And these are the very people he's dying for. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this recklessness to it. It's reckless. In other words, it's not, I'm going to go so far and not anymore. And that's what I'm going to try and convey to us this week. I'm trying to start to today. Is love is, God's love is expended in precarious endeavors that should be endeavors ever poised upon the brink of failure. Are they going to respond to me? So now getting to us and this crevasse, this pit that you're jumping into. That, and I mean now the, the, your neighbor, your wife, your husband, your children, your brothers and sisters, your family, and your strangers, neighbors, and your enemies, all. That, I'm, that we're going to love as God loves, absolutely all-encompassing without restriction to do to their benefit. And... That's what the love of God is. There's no guarantee of their response. There's no guarantee that not every single person you love will spit in your face. Or that they'll love you in return. And this is the love of God that God has for us. And so, in our past, you're still there in um, John chapter, 1 John 4, as it says there, that if God so loved us in this manner, we ought to love one another. In the same way, it would be the same writer, the same apostle who would record the Lord's words in the upper room where he would say that uh, love one another, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. And so this love is what we are called to. A reckless without restraint, without limitations, without trying to control people, saying, I've loved you, now you do for me, um, without fear of hurt. Because you will lose, you will be hurt. That's another way of restricting myself or restraining myself. I'll only go so far. Now, I believe me, I understand that, but I'm not the one that you're going to... It's not the judgment seat of Joe that you're going to stand at. I understand it completely. I'm, I'm as afraid as anybody to do this to people. 
But when I think about the love of our Lord that we read here in our passage, that is for us and what He's done for us, and that this love has come into the world first through Him, the first time it ever came. And that He is in us and He has given us His Spirit and His Word and He commands us to love as He loves. How can we not get ready to jump into the pit and lose ourselves in it? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Your Word and for the call and the challenge that You put upon us to love with Your love. It is very solemn, but also a very scary proposition. And we just uh, start with baby steps, I think. If there's people that we haven't loved, let us consider how to start. If there are people in our lives right now that we are, you put upon our hearts that we know that we haven't loved them as you, as want, you would have us, that we would do so to start to take the steps to make the right choices, to have the right thinking, to do Your will by the power of Your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.